Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. I want to talk about understanding repentance part two, not because I think you didn't repent and, and, and really needed to hear this again, but because I know that when I raise up the subject of repentance, there are questions that come to mind, troubling questions, confusion over, over certain issues related to repentance that the enemy historically goes at people. And what he tries to do is take our confidence in God's power to forgive us. We think to ourselves that we are somehow the exception. We know that, you know, God forgives us when we repent, etc. But we, we, even with that fundamental knowledge, we get it in our head that somehow I'm the exception to the rule. I'm the one that, that given the way I sin or what I did or how often I've done it, I don't really get forgiven. And so there are people who are in church, there are people who've given their lives to Christ, but still have a nagging doubt, when I get to heaven, am I going to be a surprise when I show up at the door? Is Jesus going to go, who let you in? I thought we handled this. I know people like that. Last night, as we ministered at the end, there were a surprising number of people on most of the issues I brought up that had this troubling matter. So today so that we will have boldness and uh, joy of the Lord, I want to I look at them with a real cold, clear eye. And so I'm going to ask hard questions and, sh- and show you solid biblical answers. And I want to I assure you that what I'm giving you today isn't, I'm not hedging it. I'm not sort of saying, oh, no, 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 you're just fine the way you are. I'm not going there. I'll tell you the truth, the whole truth, but you're going to see uh, as I do that that uh, the Lord's grace is there for you without question. So Holy Spirit, we thank you for building up the body of Christ. We thank you for putting our feet on a, on a rock and making us stand firmly in the gospel. And we ask that the joy of our salvation, the authority and the boldness of knowing that we belong to Christ will, will come over us afresh and be solid in our lives as the word opens. In Jesus' name, amen. The subject of repentance tends to bring to mind certain troubling questions. We're always grateful to hear the truth that God forgives us when we repent, but somewhere in the back of our minds, questions may lurk about certain sins or passages of Scripture we've read, which may have left us confused. We ask the questions, what is repentance? How does God convict us of sin? And if Christ died for me, why do I still need to repent? But this week, we'll look at some of the troubling questions that may come to mind when the topic is discussed. Our goal in explaining this subject further is to prevent the enemy from stealing our confidence in the power of Jesus Christ to forgive us. Frankly, there is nothing more important if we're to be bold in our prayers, step out in ministry, or find the true inner peace we long for. Knowing the answers to these questions we'll address today will help prevent us from becoming either careless about our sins or overwhelmed with guilt. First of all, I'm going to repeat something I talked about, and that is what is repentance, but I'll add some things. The word repentance in in the Greek 
is metanoia. Meta, uh, you recognize it's used in a lot of English words, uh, metaphysics, etc. It means uh, it means to change something. In this case, it means several things, but it means to change. And then noia or noeo is your mind. So it just simply change your mind. That's that's exactly what the what the Greek word means. You'll notice it isn't an emotional word. It doesn't say be sorrowful. It doesn't say uh, you know hate yourself for what you've done. It, it doesn't. It doesn't go. It doesn't include any of the emotional side of things. It simply is a cold, clear word that means change your mind, make a decision, choose, choose. That's what repentance is. Now, we often have uh, emotions with it. We can be sorrowful, uh, all of those kinds of things. But that's not repentance. Being sorrowful, uh, weeping, uh, grieving over what I've done is not repentance. Repentance is the choice I make. The choice to stop a wrong course of action or thought, to submit to the will of God. A course correction, an attitude adjustment, it begins when God reveals his view of my attitude or action, and then this revelation forces me to make a choice. True repentance always begins with a, with a work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I really can't repent until God has shown me my sin, till I understand it. Then I'm empowered to make a real choice. I can have people talk to me till I'm blue. I can know theoretically in my head something's wrong, but it has not struck my heart. And you know what that moment is. When all of a sudden something you know was wrong, suddenly, boom, there it is. It's real to you now. This has got to go. You see the death in it. You see the power of it. You know the change. That's a work of God. That is an important work of God. So real repentance starts with God. It starts with God coming to us. And then it's a choice I make. Will I keep going or stop? Will I repair the damage I've done? Will I move in a new direction? And then I won't take you there, but I'll remind you of the verse of scripture that I, I have in your notes. And that's in 2 Corinthians where Paul speaks to the Corinthian church and he says, I wrote you a letter and it made you sorrowful. Do you remember that? They, they, the Corinthian church was a handful. Um, they really hurt Paul's feelings at times. I, 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 as, as you study it out carefully and you see what they did to him and how they belittled him and shamed him and uh, tried to just throw him out of their lives, it was amazing. I, I mean, but he kept praying for them and he kept loving them. Well, he wrote them a letter and uh, it probably had to do it in part, there was just a number of awful things they were doing but one of them was that they had a man who was having a sexual relationship with his uh, his father's wife and they were ignoring it just didn't want to mess with it just let it kept go keep going I suppose they were loving him you know whatever and Paul said what are you doing what are you doing why don't why don't you grieve and where he was going was why don't you grieve over what's happening to this man and the, the condition of his soul how can you just smile at him when he's when he's perishing and so he writes this letter to them and, 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 and says, if you're not going to handle it, I'll handle it from the other side of the Aegean Sea. I'll handle it. And so he begins to spiritually handle it there. And I'm sure that that young man indeed uh, had some uh, experience as a result of it. But Paul says, I, but then he comments to them in, in this letter of 2 Corinthians, and he says, my letter made you sorrowful. And he said, but that's not what I wanted. But the sorrow that you had brought you to repentance. And he said, that's why I rejoice. In other words, it wasn't, I'm not, I didn't write it to make you feel bad. 
what I wanted was repentance, a change of attitude. And he said, oh, you repented. And, and with what zeal and, and, and heartfelt commitment, you repented and changed your course of action. He said, I, I just glorify God for your sincerity of faith that you responded with such repentance. Now, here comes the first wild question. If I don't repent of a sin, am I still forgiven? You know, we all know 1 John 1, 9, at least we should. I hope it's a great one to memorize. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you'll know that, notice the condition on it if we confess our sins. So it, has it ever crossed your mind, what if I forget one? What if I, you know, I mean, is it up there? So God's got a list of my sins and every time I confess, he marks one off. You know? Okay, there's that one. Good, that one. But what if I forget one? What if, I, what if I don't remember a sin that I did? Does it stay on the record? I mean, is it, is it just kind of like, well, you didn't confess it. I'm holding it against you. Each of us sins, wouldn't you agree, at times we don't even know we sin. How many discover stuff you did later on and didn't even know you did it at the time? Yeah? Attitudes, thoughts, or catch yourself in the middle of one and you didn't even know how you got there. So frankly, I mean, just on a logical sense, that if, if God didn't forgive us for, stuff, you know, for the sins we didn't confess, we'd all be cooked. I mean, this whole thing's a game. We're on our way to hell. Forget it. You know, let's go party. That's <laughs> what Paul says. He says, if you're not, you know, this is not, just eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow you may die. We do not need to fear, however, what he's looking for is an attitude of desiring to please God. Now, how are you saved? You're saved when you, there, there's several ingredients. First thing starts with repentance. Repenting from living in rebellion to my conscience, living a self-oriented life, living in rebellion to God. The first step to salvation is turning my attitude. The choice I make, I won't be a rebel anymore. It's a general attitude. It's a whole course correction for my entire life. Now, there's going to be a thousands of, of uh, choices and decisions I'll have to make, but I'm saying my commitment is I will live in obedience to God now. I'm not a rebel anymore. That's where my salvation starts. But then I turn and I say, but Lord, I've got a whole history of sins, but you have died for me. And I believe, I'm going to put my faith on this. I'm going to embrace you with all my heart that you died for my sins. And I will believe that and trust you to the last breath in my body. Now that's saving faith. Saving faith isn't, yeah, I think there was a Jesus and I think he died on the cross. I, it doesn't even save you to think he died for the sins of the world. Big deal, he did. The issue is what did he do with your sins? Are you trusting him for your sins? That's where you begin to get saved, is when you begin to say, he's my savior. He died for me. And you recognize your need of it. You've repented. You trust him. Then I would add in the gospel, there's a, thir there's a third element. Jesus shows us us. He shows us himself, but he also shows us the cross. And that is, that's the part that the American church particularly has avoided. If you come to Christ, the Bible says that you are, to, you are to sell all that you have, as it were, I mean spiritually. You make a decision to forsake the world 
and follow Christ. There's a lot of people that want to go to heaven, but they want the world too. Now, the Lord gives us a blessed life. The Lord's sweetness and presence, the Lord provides for us. He doesn't, he's not out to make us all a bunch of, of people living in caves. That's not where he's going. But attitudinally, the man or woman who's truly saved has let go of the world and says, I want eternal life. I want to glorify Jesus Christ more than I want anything this world has to offer. Now, when you make that and with, with all of that together, you become born again. There are many people who have never sold out to the Lord. They have not let go. They have not made him the Lord of their lives. They simply want to go to heaven. But Jesus says, if any man comes after me, he must, what, take up his cross daily and follow me. There is a price to the free gift of salvation. It's not just raising your hand in a service. The price is you give yourself to him. And in that, you'll find an inner miracle takes place. You actually become born again. The Spirit of God comes in and you are transformed inside. Now, with that general attitude, see, that person enters into a lifestyle of repentance. Repentance isn't something I do once when I get saved. I offer my heart to God and become a tender son or daughter. I want to please you. And when I don't, I want to repent. And so I enter into a whole lifestyle. Like, that's the heart that makes me a saved person. And when I have that heart, all my, all my sins are covered, whether I mention them or not in any confessional prayer. Did you hear me? You're covered whether you confess them or not. We talked about, well, then why do I need to confess them? And I'll, I'll mention a little bit again. But in Christ, all our sins are forgiven. Ephesians 1, 7. And yet the Bible also tells us to confess our sins to one another, and to the Lord that we may be healed. James 5. The courtyard in the tabernacle. We've been talking about the tabernacle uh, and, and going through the uh, book of Exodus. Do you remember the two pieces of furniture that are in the tabernacle? Uh, who remembers what's in there? There's, I mean, in the courtyard. There's the courtyard, and then there's the tent. The laver, we said that was like a bronze bird bath. Remember that? And that's where they wash. And what's the other part? The altar. Aha. Notice the two things that are there in the courtyard. You see this? There's the court. And uh, you first of all, when you come in the door, then there's only one door. Jesus is the one way. And you come in, and the first thing you encounter is what? The altar. Upon which the animals were slain, blood was shed for your sins. Now, that's how you and I come to God through the covering of the blood of Jesus. That covers all of our sins. That's our atonement. Someone dies for us. And then we, the laver was where, as you were going to minister before the Lord, or you were going to minister to people, you washed your hands and you washed your feet. And we said there's a balance here. And the balance is that my sins are covered by Christ, but I have still a responsibility to keep my hands self clean as it were by confession and repentance not for my salvation but to keep my heart tender the lord purifies us when we enter into a lifestyle of repentance we become tender inside and repentance and staying that way before the lord is how we do it let me give you an illustration of it in isaiah the prophet makes a statement and he the lord through him says when you turn to the right or the left, 
you'll hear a voice behind you. And it will say what? This is the way. Walk you in it. And what the implication is, when you turn to the right and you start to get off my plan for your life, or you turn to the left, you're, you're, you're going the wrong direction. You'll hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk you in it. Now, a repentant person starts and begins to make a wrong turn. The Lord says, no, no, wrong way. We go, I'm sorry, Lord, corrects back and gets right on line. Oh, you're making a wrong step. And don't we have those course corrections? I mean, our life isn't a straight line. It's kind of a, like that. However, there are people who aren't repentant quickly, and their life is more like bumper cars. They have to go all the way to the right, sort of curb to curb, bang! And then they, oh, I'm going to go all the way this way, bang! And they, they go, boom, 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 having to find out the hard way as they disregard the, the, the counsel of the Lord because they're not tender and they're not repentant. So this repentance isn't a groveling thing. It's a, it's, it's a tender heart, a heart that's easily corrected. That's what repentance really is. And that's what he's looking for in us. And what it will do is allow us to walk a peaceful life right down, right down God's plan for us without all of these sidebars and distractions and, and trouble that we put ourselves in. How many have been through some sidebars and distractions that it would have been a nice thing to avoid? Yeah, me too. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, right now you talk to me about anything but the will of God and I start twitching because I've been there. I don't want to be out of the will of God. I've troubled myself and my family and everybody else by not being quickly repentant. Second question. How often can I repent of the same sin? Well, what would you say, five times? Yeah, turn with me to Matthew 18. This is a question that comes up in people's minds. And, and here's how this, the cycle works. People... People sin against the Lord and have some sort of habitual, addictive thing going. And then when they do it, they say, oh God, I am so sorry. If you will just forgive me, I promise I'll never do it again. Right? And then, boink, they do it again. Oh Lord, I know I said I wouldn't do it. But this time, if you forgive me, I'll, I really mean it. I'll never, ever do it again. Boink. God, now I know I said I wouldn't do it the last two times, but I really mean it now. I mean, I'm, I really got my attention. I'm, I'm there now, okay? I will never do this again. Will you forgive me? Boink. I mean, you know, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. This is cycle. All right. And then after a while, and this can go on for hundreds of times or however long, after a while, you become so ashamed that you cannot bring yourself to look him in the eye again. And the thought comes, if I really repented, I would have stopped. I must not have repented. I don't know what's wrong with me. Now, I want to tell you, this is a very dangerous point that I'm on right now. Because, I, I mean, I, I have, I, people worry about things like Satanism and all this kind of stuff. I don't think I've ever seen a believer leave the Lord for Satanism. But I have seen this issue of condemnation and shame drive people away from the Lord. And I've seen it for years in many lives. This is a very dangerous issue that I'm putting my finger on. Now, Jesus says here, he's talking to Peter, 
in uh, Matthew 18, verse 21, Peter's want, trying to learn about forgiveness, and he, and he says, he came to the Lord and said, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times, and Peter's feeling pretty magnanimous about himself, seven times, I'm a forgiving guy. And then Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven, meaning keep going infinitely. Don't put a limit on it. It doesn't mean 490 and then quit. I hate the guy. He's just facing basically just keep forgiving. Now, if you and I are to forgive one another like that, and that was what he just said, doesn't that reflect the heart of God? We are to become like God who is infinitely merciful. There is no limit to the forgiving capacity of God. So you've got to, we've got to really understand, he will not grow weary of you. As you come to him in repentance, he will not get sick of having you show up. It is his heart to keep forgiving, even as he wants you and I to do that with each other. But doesn't my continued failure prove I never really repented? I mean, if I truly repented, wouldn't I stop? This question usually arises when someone's in bondage to an addictive behavior, such as, and I have sex there, and there's areas where it's not an addictive behavior. Sex, drugs, alcohol, gambling, cursing, temper, smoking, whatever your issue might have been. They promise God they'll stop and then fail again. The cycle is repeated over and over again until they become too ashamed to ask for forgiveness again. If I really repented, wouldn't I have stopped? No, I don't think that's necessarily true at all. I think people often deeply and sincerely are sorry and grieve over what they've done and want to stop. But then they do it again. Why? Because they're in bondage. I don't think we have any idea often. We have no idea the, the, the strength of the chains that hold our hearts. Even after we come to Christ. Now, he's going to set us free, but there's a process in many of these things. Some things fall off and some don't. And so a person is saying, Lord, I'm so sorry. I'll never do it again. And then, boing, and that chain holds him. I didn't know that thing was there. I'm sorry, Lord. I'll just, just give, me, give me a minute. We'll handle this. <clears throat> and the chain holds. What you're discovering in your failure isn't God's unwillingness to forgive you or that you're a phony. You're discovering you're in bondage. You're discovering there's a chain around your neck you didn't know was there. Now what happens is when people focus on themselves and say, I promise I'll never do this again, or give me a time, or hang on God, what, who are we relying on to get free of this? Yes, and there's the problem. You are self-oriented on, your, on this whole process. You're, pro, you're sorry, you repent of it, and you, but there comes the problem. You rely on yourself to get free of a bondage that's way too big for you. And some people, out of sheer discouragement, say, I guess I'm not cut out to be a Christian. I mean, I, I just can't seem to walk this Christian walk thing. I mean, I, I, it was all fine, but I guess I'm not the kind of person. Have you heard this? I sure have. I'm, I guess I'm just not the kind of guy that, that can be a Christian. You are relying on yourself. Here are some important points. Actually, it is important to keep repenting. First of all, keep repenting. Otherwise, the devil uses shame to separate us from God. 
So if you, if you, if you sin a thousand times or two thousand times, repent two thousand times. Do you understand? Don't ever stop repenting. Because the alternative is to pull away from God and say, I just, I, I just can't look you in the face again. You don't want to see me again. I know you don't. And now the devil has done just what he's wanted to do. He's put a wedge between you and God. That mustn't happen. That mustn't happen. You may be failing over and over again. You come back to him over and over again. You understand? How many times will he forgive you? Seventy times seven. Virtually, yes. He'll keep forgiving. Second point. We need to admit to God that without his intervention, we are helpless to change. We begin to exercise faith that he will help us stop. Do any of you recognize the name Brother Lawrence? He's an old monk um, hundreds of years ago, and he worked in a kitchen in a monastery. And this man had such a, a relationship with the Lord. It was so powerful and so tender that people would come, archbishops would come and all, and they'd sit in his kitchen and take notes, you know, unless this guy talks. And, and Brother Lawrence, he wrote a little booklet called Practicing the Presence of God. But one, the things you note about Brother Lawrence is, is his, his attitude. He, he would say, Lord, I'm, 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 I'm failing here. I'm sinning here. And then he would say, and if you don't do something, I'll never change. <laughs> he threw the problem right, into, right up to into the Lord's arms. He didn't say, give me a minute. I'll get this fixed, God, and then you'll be proud of your boy. What he said was, I can't handle this. It's bigger than me. And if you don't do a miracle, I'll never be free. But he did, and it wasn't that isn't an, a, a passive thing that isn't a, a cynical spot position. What he was doing is by faith saying, I'm believing you to do a miracle to set your son free. Do you see that? So where does my emphasis go? It goes on God. I begin to realize that this chain that I've got around me is bigger than me. And if God doesn't do a miracle, I'm not coming out. But God is capable of miracles. God's willing to do that. He wants me free. And the sun sets free is free indeed. And so I begin to believe God and focus not so much on trying not to do this, but as focusing on God entering in and delivering me. Now what will he do? He does lots of things. He'll show us the sin and the power of it. He'll show us the death that's in the sin. He'll, he'll suddenly make it look different. Uh, what, what, what once was sweet goes to dust. What was pleasurable becomes uh, bitter to us. I mean, he, he will enter in and begin to really work with us. Our freedom will often involve confessing to trusted elders. It'll involve other people. Again, one of the reasons we fail is because we try to handle it alone. We're ashamed, we're embarrassed, we don't want anybody else to know. So we, we handle our problem by ourselves. Again, self-reliance. Self-reliance is, is the critical factor here. There is no deliverance in, in many areas until it's brought into the light. But I want to ca caution you about how you do this. You must confess, but notice what I said, trusted elders. Somebody who's more mature than you and somebody who can be trusted. And that is not every Christian. Yes. There are a lot of people who are gossips, there are a lot of people who are scolds. All they do when you bring your problem to them is go, don't you know you're not supposed to do that? Well, yeah, you did. That's why you're here. Um, and it, 
Don't you know it says right here you're not supposed to do it. Stop it. Thank you. Thank you. So it's what I needed. Thank you very much. Just what I needed to hear. Now there's a lot of that. In the fundamentalist and evangelical Pentecostal world, there are a lot of scolds. Don't carry your pain to a scold. Be picky. Find someone who's mature and gracious because what we need to do is help one another. Not scold one another. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Uh, say, I'll be praying tomorrow at 10 when, you're, when you have that meeting or whatever. Just standing with each other in a supportive, loving way without judgmentalism toward each other. If we'll do that for each other, we're going to start coming out of all kinds of things. If we scold one another and condemn one another, you just all you do is cause a person to close up all the tighter and say, boy, that was a mistake. I'll never do that again. And it was. <laughs> but you were, it came to the wrong person. Trusted elders, spiritual warfare. We got to have people praying for us like, like we were a mission team. Asking others to pray. Receiving counsel from those who found freedom. How did you get free? How did God do? It builds my faith. It gives me, gives me all kinds of directions. Finally, God gives us mercy up to the point that we refuse the way of escape. I said he'll forgive you over and over again, and he will. But there comes a moment when kind of his merciful tolerance of the situation stops. And, and, and in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we get an idea of where that is. He says, and I'm going to quote it in King James, forgive me. No temptation is taken thee, but such is common to man. For God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able to bear. Notice that? He will not let you be tempted. He will never let God, the devil put you, and the, and the language of the Greek is as though it's a stone, wall, stone canyon coming down to a, a, a point where you're being backed up by these temptations and these assaults until you've got nothing but stone behind you and there's no place to go. He says he'll never let you get caught in that situation. But he says, will with the temptation also what? Make a way of escape. And so the picture is you may be backed into this corner, but you can look and, oh, there's a crack in the wall and you can get out. He says he will always do that. There will always be for the children of God a way of escape. Always. No one is a slave. No one is ever trapped helplessly. Your father will not allow it. Your father will not allow it. However, God gives us mercy up to the point we refuse the way of escape. Sometimes we go, no, I don't think so. Then he will discipline us, hallelujah, so we will not be condemned along with the world. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll just read a verse there. The Corinthian church was doing unbelievable things with, with communion, with the Lord's Supper. I, I won't go through what it was. But Paul says, you're being judged of God. And for this reason, many of you are weak and sick and a number sleep. And some people are even dying because of it. And I, I don't want to take the time. But then verse 31, he says, if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. And that's a wonderful promise. If I repent quickly, there's no, I'm not gonna, there's no discipline coming. But then verse 32, he says, but when we are judged, meaning disciplined by the Lord, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Your heavenly Father loves you enough that there are, there are behaviors that have to go. There are attitudes that have to change. 
And he will patiently receive our repentance and over and over again, and he'll give us ways of escape, and he'll offer us help. And if there comes a point where we begin refusing the offer because we love what we do, we want to hold on to these attitudes, then he will shift into father mode in which he will discipline us. And his discipline is not to be cruel or hurt us. His discipline is to make us willing to let go of our sin. Because he is a respecter of no, not a respecter of persons. He's a just judge. And Paul says he will not have his children coming before him on the, on the judgment day and condemning an unbeliever for the same thing a believer's doing. He says he does not want you condemned along with the world. And so cleaning us up is an absolutely essential part of this salvation of ours. We're not earning anything, but you and I must not stay the same. It, 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 is, not, it is not acceptable to have us stay the same. So he will discipline us so we'll not be condemned along with the world. All right, la- stumbling is one thing. Practicing the sin is another. Practicing is a lifestyle that has emerged because opportunities to stop have been ignored. Practicing a sin. What's the difference between practicing and stumbling? Stumbling's an accident. Stumbling's a weak moment. Stumbling's you did something dumb. Practicing is you keep doing stuff dumb. And you keep stumbling. And you, you keep uh, it up and so that there's a pattern that emerges that becomes apparent that you are making choices to ignore the help God is offering you. You're not a, you're not a victim. You're a person who's chosen to continue in this. That is not acceptable, and your father will begin to discipline you. And so there are people, there are Christians, who trouble their own lives enormously because they refuse to change. And so your father, who loves you, begins to put on the heat. Next question. Are some sins worse than others? Yes, let's move on. They actually are. You know, there's always some philosopher in the church that comes up and says, I think all sins are the same, you know. One, you know, murder and jaywalking, they're all sin, aren't they? (laughs) Let's think about that. Well, let's think about it. In the Old Testament, there were certain things that you took a bath for and, and for a week sat in your house. And there were other things they put you in a pit and stoned you to death. Do you consider that different? I do. There are some sins which are bad and other sins that aren't nearly so bad. It's just like that. That's life. There are things that a Christian cannot continue to do, period, and go to heaven. And I said that and I meant it. There are things that you cannot continue to do. Paul, Paul says it right here. He's talking again about that, I mentioned earlier, that man who was... His, uh, sleeping with his father's wife, and he's, he's taught how he's going to discipline him, and he's disciplining him to save the man's soul. And then he says his basic principle as to why he disciplined him. It's, it's verses 9 and 10. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, what does it mean to inherit the kingdom of God? He says in verse chapter 15, flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God, referring to the resurrection. 
Okay, so the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators or idolaters or adulterers, nor effeminate nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's why the church must do discipline. It isn't because you're mean. It isn't because you don't want folks like that around here kind of thing. It is because you're fighting for people's salvation. And it's Church discipline is only done in, in extreme situations. After appeal and prayer and, and seeking uh, with a heart change, after it becomes quite apparent we're not stumbling, we're practicing, we've refused every opportunity for help, we're determined to try to stay in the church, try to stay saved, as it were, but continue to practice certain categories of sin. What, what makes them worse? Some sins are far more addictive. They put you in bondage to a demonic spirit frankly. They put you in bondage to a demonic spirit. Other things are a nuisance, but certain things put you into bondage to a demonic spirit or do enormous harm to others. Those sins cannot be continued. You can't be sort of a murderer for Jesus. <laughs> hey, forgives me. Every so often just comes over me. I don't know. Bang, bang. Makes me feel good for the moment. Then I'm sorry and I repent. It's okay. Blood covers it all. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. It, it would if you truly repented, but you can't tell me that you couldn't help yourself. You had to just keep pulling the trigger, right? You see where we're going? There's certain things that if you keep it up, it takes so much energy to do it, so many decisions to do it, there's no excuse. It could be stopped. And that's the category he's talking about. So Paul says some sins will take a person to hell even if they profess to be a Christian. This is why a church must discipline believers who continue to practice such behaviors. We must warn people so they'll not be deceived into believing they can keep doing certain things and still go to heaven. When I've had to do this, and we've done it for years, we don't, I, you'll notice I don't bring people up and humiliate them. We don't, we don't do go there. But we do sit with people, and, and usually the conversation says something like this. Look, we've done everything we know to, to encourage you to stop or seek help, and you refuse. And it's, this is always where you've got a defiant refusal. We're going to set you outside the church. We don't want, the Bible says, and I take them to the, this and other verses, the Bible says that you cannot continue doing this and go to heaven. Now, I'm going to set you outside the fellowship of the saved so that you know your spiritual condition. I do not want you arriving before Jesus Christ on the judgment day and assuming you're going to heaven and have him say, depart from me, for I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. I'm not going to have that. And you're going to turn and say, he's my pastor. He never told me. Well, I'm telling you. I'm telling you now why you can do something about it. And so we're setting you outside the church. Now, we love you. We want you back. And as soon as you're willing to let go of that beast, you come back. I'm not going to tell everybody. I'm not going to shame you. I want you to come back and be with us. Now, if you talk about it to everybody and lie about what I'm saying or doing, I'll have to tell the truth. But I'm keeping my mouth shut if you will. And so I want you back. And over the years, many people have come back. And usually the comment is, thank you for loving me enough to do what you did. Because that's what it's all about. Paul says we're fighting for their eternal life. 
So are there some sins? Yes, there are. Is there an unforgivable sin? I have 16 seconds. Yes. Let's close. There is one. Let's turn to Matthew 12. This is one that you'd be surprised. Last night, confirmed it. I said, how many of you have been troubled at the end of the service? How many of you have been troubled by the thought that you may have committed the unforgivable sin? And I think there were four or five hands, four or five people in, the, in, that one, in one service that actually uh, feared they had committed the unforgivable sin. Over the years, there's always somebody, they got angry, their grandma died, and they cursed God. And uh, they think, uh-oh, I've done it. Let's have a look. I'm going to show you what the unforgivable sin is. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the truth, and you can decide whether you've done it. Frankly, if you have done it, you're doodling on a piece of paper and not paying any attention to me anyway. <laughs> if you even came in the door. Okay. Matthew 12, verse 22. Jesus has been healing powerfully, doing marvelous miracles, and look at the reaction of these religious leaders. A demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, the Messiah, can he? Meaning, I th we think he is. But when the Pharisees, these religious leaders, heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul. Uh, Aramaic means Lord of the Flies, the ruler of demons. Now, what a thing to say. And then Jesus says, begins to argue with him and saying, would the devil fight against himself? And then we come down to verse 31. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the son of man, you can assault me, you can call me names, you can be confused about who I am. It shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Well, how does the Holy Spirit speak? The Holy Spirit speaks in our conscience and in the quiet of our heart. He's saying if you refuse the clear witness of your heart, if you, so you look cold and straight at who I am and what I'm doing, you can watch me healing the sick and caring for, the, for people. You can watch the love of God flowing and sense his power moving, and you can look at it and say, that's the devil. Not because you're deceived, but because you know exactly who I am and you hate me and want to kill me. See, he tells a parable to explain the motives of these leaders. Remember the one? It's about a vineyard that a man owned and there were people who had rented the vineyard and they were working the, the grapevines. And the man said, I'm going to send my servant to collect my portion of the harvest. Well, the servants came and the people running the vineyard looked up and saw and said, huh, uh, let's kill this guy. And they'd, they'd kill the servant. Several were sent. But finally, the owner of the vineyard said, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. They'll respect him. And then it says the workers in the vineyard looked up and said, that's the owner's son. Let's kill him and the vineyard will be ours. Jesus was revealing the heart of those religious leaders. They did not they were not confused about who he was. They knew he was the Messiah. They knew that he should be the, the, the leader of Israel. And they were, and they didn't want to let go of it. So they said, even if he's the son of God, let's kill him. 
and hold on to the vineyard. That is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That is flagrant defiance of all your heart tells you. You so harden yourself, you refuse to hear it because you don't want to hear it. And he says that when you do that to yourself, we can't, even, we can't do anything for you in this life or the next because you have so silenced your conscience. I'll show you one, two more quick passages also. Hebrews chapter 6. There's another aspect to this. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. Now let me tell you who Hebrews was written to. The book of Hebrews was written to Christian Jews during, from 66 to 70 AD. Jerusalem was being attacked and besieged by the Romans. There was war. And they were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ by their family and by their synagogues and all. And there were Jews, Christian Jews, who were saying, can we just get rid of Jesus? I mean, it was enough to be the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for the last couple thousand years. We didn't need Jesus then. Can we just put him out of our lives and go on? Because we don't want to be persecuted. And the book of the letter of Hebrews is written to say, no, you can't. And, and here's what it says. Verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, people who are born again, people who've got the Holy Spirit come into their life, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified of themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Without commenting, let's go to chapter 10. I'll read you a couple, few more verses and then I'll comment. Verse 26. If we go on sinning, and this isn't just doing bad stuff, this is, this is what's called apostasy. If we cast Christ out of our life, if we go on with this willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who is trampled underfoot, look at that, the Son of God, and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I'll repay. The Lord will judge his people. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. What is the unforgivable sin? It's this attitude. that Though the Holy Spirit has shown you who Jesus Christ is, you decide to completely violate your conscience by refusing to accept him because you don't want to submit to his lordship. But it's also this. You choose to discard him after becoming a believer. Because you aren't willing to suffer the persecution that comes because you're a Christian. Remember the parable of the sowers? Some of the seed fell on rocky soil. It grew up quickly. But then when the sun beat down on it, it died. And Jesus said the rocky soil represented the heart that received the word gladly. But then when affliction and persecution came, faith died. These Christians in the book of Hebrews were saying, Jesus is getting us in trouble. We're being persecuted and afflicted by family members. We're being outcasts. We don't want him. Can we get rid of him? 
And the answer is, if you can harden yourself, you can harden your conscience to the point that he who's loved you, that you know he's the son of God, there's no question in your mind, you know he died for you and was butchered for you to pay for your sins, you would throw him out for convenience or to protect yourself? You would so harden yourself you could not find repentance when you were done. There'd be no repentance for you. You've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Now, that is not cussing out God because you were angry because Grandma died. Do you see the difference? I had a woman last night talk to me who'd feared she'd done this and she was in great, had been in great pain, suffered enormously and had been asking God for healing. And then in a moment of just exasperation, she said, I want you out of my life, get away from me. She was so angry at God, why wouldn't he heal her? Well, in her thinking, he was saying, no, I won't heal you. My thinking, there wasn't enough power and real faith and understanding about healing was probably the issue. But in her mind, he rejected her and so she was rejecting him back. Had, I, had she committed the unforgivable sin, you tell me? Not at all. This was an emotional thing where, where Jesus would say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There's an awful lot of dumb things that get said and done. And God just looks at us like a, like a troubled child. He understands where it came from. He understands the confusion. We're not talking about confused anything. When you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you blaspheme the clear witness of your heart. You know exactly what you're doing and you're willing to trample underfoot the, the Son of God and say, I don't care if you died for me. Get out of my life. Now, I'll bet nobody in this room has done that or even come close to that. You've had angry moments with God. You've had fearful, confused moments. So what? We all have. That's not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is an extreme violation of your conscience. It is the maximum one. And if you do that, it takes such chutzpah to do it, you ruin yourself in the process. You kill your own heart in the doing. So how does God want us to handle all this repentance and sin? First of all, he wants me to trust his power to forgive me and deliver me from sin. How often will he forgive me? Seven times 70. He'll just keep going. And he wants me to, but he wants me to keep my own heart tender and submitted to him. It's like this. I'm in the hands of God. The Bible says that there's no power, no principality, power, no things present, or no things future, or not things, angels or anything else can take me away from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 31 through 39. There's not a devil in hell that can drag me away from God. Now, I intend to stay saved. How about you? I intend to walk with God. So I don't have a moment's thought. I don't have any hesitation that I'm going to lose my salvation. It ain't going to happen. But the Bible also says, Stephen, tend your heart. Stay repentant. Stay, stay full of faith. Read the word. Pray. Gather with the people of God. Don't neglect your spiritual life. Invest in it properly as you should. Do the things that are there. And I will keep you close to me. Keep your lamp full of oil until the coming of the bridegroom. I have a responsibility, a very doable one. Nothing, nothing's hard. Nobody's going to snatch me out of his hands. But I can't say, I'm, I'm not going to say on the one hand, I don't have to ever tend to my spiritual life again. I can do anything. I'll just, once saved, always saved. No, that's nonsense. Once saved, very saved. 
I'm in his hands. I'm loved of him. He's surrounded me. And I have no intention of ever walking out of those hands. If I do, my father will discipline me. Thank the Lord. He'll chase me down to the last breath in my body. He'll fight for me. He'll make my life miserable. Hallelujah. But he'll stay close to me in the process. And even if he has to fight for me to the last breath in my body, on my deathbed, I find that. I've, I've led people to the Lord as they're dying and said, squeeze my hand if you receive Christ and had them go a few hours later. The Holy Spirit will chase you down to the last breath in your body. That's the one that's got his hands on me. I'm going to heaven. How about you? Father, we love you. And we thank you with all our hearts for that gift of, of a tender heart. And we choose today, we position ourselves before you to have humble, repentant hearts. You will not find here men and women who want to fight you. But we trust you, dear Father. When we turn to the right or the left, you'd say, this is the way, walk you in it. We will correct our, our path. We don't want to go curb to curb. We want now to walk with you in obedience and to please you with all that's in us. Now let me ask you, is there anybody here today who has been afraid that there's sins that God has not forgiven or that you've sinned so often that he was sick and tired of you. But right now you're going to stand in faith and say, that's not true. That is not true. That lie that's been trying to hold my heart and say that somehow I'm an exception to the rule, somehow I violated things so badly that God is sick of me and doesn't want me anymore and has not, my, the grace has lifted from my life. Is there anybody right now who says, I know that's a lie and I'm going to declare it right now. Raise your hand if that's you. Go ahead, hold them up. Praise God. I want you to hold them up for a minute. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. See, this is, this is the insidious thing of the devil. Just keep your hand up. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray right now for our brothers and sisters. And where that lie has come and said, you've done something so bad, it can't be forgiven. Or you've done it so often, he's sick of you. In the name of the Lord, we break that lie and command it, release them right now. You get off of them because that thing has a demonic root. And we just pull it out right now in the name of Jesus. And we pray for our beloved and Lord, may fresh faith, may the oil of the Spirit come into this heart with confidence, with assurance. May their hearts cry out right now, Abba, Father. Say that, church. Abba, Again. Again. Abba, Father. Once more. Abba, Father. Holy Spirit, within these hearts, cry out, Abba, Father, that they would know that they are your children. We thank you for the power of the blood of the Lamb. We thank you for 70 times 7. We thank you there's not a sin on earth that you didn't die for. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Now let me ask you, you can put your hands down. One more question. Anybody feel that you may have committed the unforgivable sin and that has really been something that has troubled you? You were afraid that that has happened in your life and that fear has gnawed at you that you did something that was unforgivable. Anybody need to raise your hand on that? Yes, yes, yes. Go ahead. Yeah, there's a number. I, this, is, this is one of the tactics of the enemy. Now, as you do that, are, do you understand? I've told you the truth. I've told you the whole truth. Do you understand what the unforgivable sin is? Do you declare right now that you have not committed it? Those of you that raised your hand, I want you to just say to the Lord, I have never wanted 
to or are never with understanding intended to crucify my Lord and cast him away from me. I reject that. You are my Lord. I love you. Just say that to him right now. Because if you can repent right now, if you're tender to this right now, if you're hearing, you haven't done it. Because if you had done it, your, your heart would be so seared you couldn't repent. That's what it says. So if you're repentant, you haven't done it. Now just right now, those of you who raised your hand, just say to him, I thank you. I've not done it. That's a lie. Call it that. And just quietly under your breath, speak it out of your lips. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Precious Lord. And Lord, we stand in agreement with them. Thank you, Lord, for removing this area of doubt and this fear and just breaking its power over our beloved. We just declare, Lord Jesus, that we'd hear your words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Things have been said. Actions have been taken. We're not at all proud of it. We grieve over our foolishness and our immaturity. But we knew not what we did. Jesus Christ, we receive you. We thank you for your precious blood. We honor you this day. Particularly those of you who've just prayed for that. Just say, yes, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.